The Department of Transportation is making cybersecurity a major factor in U.S. infrastructure projects. DOT is now embedding cybersecurity requirements and guidance in the grants it distributes to state and local governments. For the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday sat down with DOT Chief Information Officer Cordell Schachter. DOT proposed an approach for cybersecurity in bipartisan infrastructure law grants to the NSC and an intergovernmental policy committee that, and working group that they pulled together. Through various rounds of discussions and proposals and counterproposals, we uh, finally proposed using existing uh, TSA requirements and guidelines. And basically our approach has four components. Number one, to designate a cybersecurity point of contact. Number two, to create a cybersecurity incident reporting plan. Number three, create a cybersecurity incident response plan. And I'll come back and explain the difference. And four, conduct a self-assessment. Those four steps exist already in guidance and directives that TSA has given to various operators in various sectors um, throughout the country. So it shouldn't be new to anyone. It's been discussed for a long time. And it's also seen as something that's achievable even for uh, potential grantees who don't have very advanced cybersecurity practices. And remember, we think of cybersecurity around our overall goal of improving resilience from all hazards in our grant making, including, say, climate. But cybersecurity in particular, we would like infrastructure that's either modernized or newly built to be secure by design so that the cybersecurity aspect of it is built in and not added later as we might have to do to legacy technology. So the cybersecurity point of contact is really identifying a single person in the organization who agrees to take responsibility for cybersecurity. They may not even be the cybersecurity expert. They may, they may need um, other governmental staff or even um, private consultant support to perform that role. But at least it's the one person who can be the point of contact for the federal government or for other entities that need to talk with them about cybersecurity matters. The cybersecurity reporting plan is, is a lot less complicated than it sounds. It means if you think you have an incident, who are you going to call? Kind of the Ghostbusters question, right? So are you going to call the FBI? Are you going to call CISA? And, and the time to make that decision and maybe talk with them about who's the best person to call and even the best phone number to call on is before the incident occurs, right, when you're racing around with your hair on fire. So our guidance or requirement is to prepare that information in advance with the organizations that want to receive that call. The third is the cybersecurity response plan. So depending on the size of your enterprise and the number of systems, should that system be compromised or you're worried that it's compromised, what's the next thing you'll do? Is it something that you can just isolate? contain it because it's not mission critical, it's not life or death, or is it something that you can't shut off so that you need to have and be thinking about, you know, resilient backup systems? So it kind of gets the conversation started um, and will likely be what we call a, a living document, a document that's going to be updated over time.
And then the last and, and fourth thing we're asking operators to do or potential grantees to do is to perform a self-assessment. And in that self-assessment, you identify your strengths and weaknesses and hopefully invest into the weaknesses so that your cybersecurity practice improves. And already the, the Federal uh, Transit Administration has posted on DOT's website a self-assessment template for transit operators. So it's great that they kind of moved out of the gate on this very quickly with some support um, from the um, consultant and not-for-profit um, community, including the Mineta Transportation Institute, and, and are on their way. And the assessment is something that's not necessarily simple to complete, and we understand that. And, and our expectation is that a grantee would complete this in two years. And we pick that span of time because the initial activity after being awarded a grant is to mobilize, is to get your plans um, finalized. And in those plans should be a recognition of cybersecurity. You're probably going to have to engage the private sector to help you build that infrastructure or modernize existing infrastructure. And as part of that mobilization, then we're hoping that your partners will help you to create that self-assessment based upon the plans uh, for modernization or to build new. Got it. All right. That's a great overview. And these requirements slash guidance, depending on the type of grant, can you kind of break down how that works? Some of these grants, these folks will have to do it in order to win. Others will just see this as guidance and it won't necessarily be a requirement. Yeah, the lion's share of the grant making under the bipartisan infrastructure law is formula grants, which means that the organizations, the state and local governments, tribal and territorial governments, if they qualify, has been predetermined. For those grantees, we will issue the the cybersecurity approach as guidance and and really support them in achieving it, but it's not a condition of, of receiving the grant. On the discretionary side, our intent is that to have the cybersecurity approach be part of the conditions that they need to satisfy to be awarded the money. But I want to stress, we deliberately chose non-onerous steps in our approach so that even an organization that is not very sophisticated from a cybersecurity perspective can achieve these goals. And the first thing that we do is we say, is there cybersecurity, potential cybersecurity risk in the infrastructure or in, in the subject of the grant? And an easy no answer, no cybersecurity risk, would be a grant to a planning organization for only creating a paper plan. Maybe it's a digital plan now. But, but there's very, very low, if any, risk there. So that grantee doesn't have to sweat the cybersecurity piece. For any infrastructure, it could be physical infrastructure, um, it could be vehicles, um, whatever it is, we will uh, do an evaluation of the project and determine if it has what we're calling elevated cybersecurity risk, then we would ask you to complete uh, the four components of the cybersecurity approach. Just last thing on the grants, these requirements slash guidance are they being included in new requests for proposals today? Are they 
is it still under development? Where, where is it kind of at in implementation? So it's our intent that it, a standard paragraph approved across the government, recognizing the, uh, the interest of DOT and DHS, would be submitted uh, with all of the notices of funding opportunities. If that had been missed in the past, then we're going to correct that going forward. That's Cordell Schachter, DOT's chief information officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. You can find more of Justin's reporting on this issue at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you 
recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, 
we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.